I will start in my exposition of various passages or texts of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 31 this morning. If you'd like to turn there, that way you're there by the time I get there. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Before I read that, though, I have to remind everybody of, well, if I, I don't have to, but I am, to help uh, everyone realize what I'm doing in this series of sermons. This series began a few months ago, is exploring these questions. Should Christians obey all 10 of the Ten Commandments? That's the first question. And the second question is, assuming a yes answer, what should that look like? Because it's one thing to say, well, yeah, we should obey the Ten Commandments. And it's another thing to say, what should that look like? So in review of the 14 or so sermons that have been preached, Scripture teaches clearly that the law of God convicts all men of being divine lawbreakers. We're not divine in our persons, but the law is from God. It's the divine law, and we are creatures created in God's image with the law written in our hearts, but we don't do a good job of, of living in such a way as reflecting that we have it in us and we're living according to us. As a matter of fact, since the fall into sin, we do a very bad job of that. But Adam and Eve, the first creatures created in the image of God, had the law written on their hearts, and they had this thing, okay, this ability to, uh, we call it original righteousness. They had this ability to engage with creatures outside of themselves and then think or act in response to those creatures outside of themselves in co complete conformity with the law that was written within. We don't do that. Uh, we can't do that. We are not in the same condition that Adam and Eve were when they came from the hand of their maker. But we're still image bearers responsible to God to obey his law. And since the fall, the law condemns us all. Now we started looking after the fall into sin, uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, we started looking at the Old Testament. We asked a question, uh, are there any sinners after Adam and Eve? And if there are, what is the gauge, what is the guide, what is the standard we use to judge their actions or thoughts, whether good or bad, between Genesis 4 all the way to Exodus 20? Because that's the first time in the Bible, Exodus 20, is the first time we have what we call the Ten Commandments or the, the Decalogue, which just means the Ten Words. And I said at some point, you know, it, we have this, I think it's an acquired instinct, it might even be a natural instinct, that when we read from Genesis, I think, 1 and 2, all the way to Exodus 20, prior to Exodus 19, let's say, when we read that and when we judge the good or bad thoughts or actions of people that we find there, there's a grid that we usually judge them through. And what is that? It's the Ten Commandments. Now, whether you were taught that or that just became, in, that's uh, coming from our being created in the image of God when we engage with the scripture, it doesn't matter. I think it's a good instinct. I think we're right to do so. Now, 
Though the Ten Commandments are not revealed explicitly together as a unit in the Bible until Exodus 20, I think we can say that they function before Exodus 20. That's what I tried to prove, tried to prove two weeks or three or four weeks ago. Uh, they function before Exodus 20, and they function after Exodus 20, and I'll argue next week as a unit, as promised in the New Covenant passage of Jeremiah, which we'll get to. Now, that's what I want to do this week. I want to look at, uh, um, I want to look at the promise of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. The reason we're going to do that is because we're going to see that there's this promise that the law of God is going to be my law, God it's called, God's law, is going to be written on the hearts of everybody under this covenant inaugurated by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to identify what that means, and I'll do that next week. So this is a broader uh, scope sermon looking at the promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament, and then next week we'll drill down into I will put my, I will write my law on their hearts. I will put it on their minds. What does that, what does that mean? I think this is very crucial in our study because what, what the New Covenant passages in the Old Testament promise is what we as Christians enjoy. These are promises in the Old Testament, that are brought to historical fruition, for lack of a better word, by virtue of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. And so the benefits that sinners receive by virtue of the work of Christ are these things promised in this coming new covenant. And if we are beneficiaries of the work of Christ, then the things promised there are the things that we enjoy. It's very crucial for our uh, thinking, I think, as Christians to realize this. And then for next week, also crucial, is that they promise God will write his law on the hearts of Christians. What does that mean? Does the New Testament help us with that? And next week we'll look at that. So let's look at a, a the larger picture here, focusing, first of all, on Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. We have this promise of a new covenant. Behold, verse 31, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, the, the Mosaic covenant, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Isn't that interesting? God was married to his people, but they were very unfaithful. But this is the covenant that I will make, this is in the future, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Notice he dropped the house of Judah, just says house of Israel. Interesting. Well, I'll make a comment about that soon. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will be their God, and they shall be my, excuse me, and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, 
saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And whatever that means, it sounds pretty good, all right? And uh, uh, I kind of like it and hope it's true of me that I get these kind of benefits because we're all sinners. We need our sins forgiven. We all have internal problems. We need a new heart. We need divine work in us. We can't do that. We're creatures. I can't cause you to have a new heart. I can't cause the law of God to be written on your hearts. This is the language of creation, right? It's actually the language of recreation because according to Paul, we already everyone already has the law written in their hearts. We just don't engage with it properly. But this is a work of renovation, of recreation going on here in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, Covenant, new covenant. Okay, it's not the first time the word covenant occurs in in the Bible. Obviously, um, what a cutie! This is my hour, buddy. Get back to your seat. The word covenant occurs a lot of times in the Bible, right? Old Testament, New Testament. It's a very important word. We read of a covenant with Adam, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, with the nation of Israel, the older Mosaic covenant, covenant with David, this new covenant. Uh, we, we, we read in the New Testament of the new covenant as promised in the Old Testament. We also read of the blood of the everlasting covenant in Hebrews 13.20. So covenant, that's an important thing. But, but what is a covenant? So i got to give a basic definition. Here's my working definition of a divine covenant with man. And it is as follows. A divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. Now, that's pretty simple. This comes from God. Uh, and it comes to creatures, men, um, for, in order to bring men in a certain relationship to God. Okay, it can be done on a national level, as he did with Israel. It can be done uh, on an individual level that has more universal effects. Abraham was an individual, but Abraham w- was given a promise that through him, the nations of the world would be blessed. So though it has an individual aspect, you know, it goes out and goes forth ultimately to Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So there are two types of divine covenants. We're not talking about covenants between men and men. We're talking about covenants enacted by God upon men. There are two types uh, of covenants between, uh, that God enacts upon men in the Bible. The first type requires doing This type requires obedience to God's law to secure the blessings of the covenant imposed upon man by God. So if you want the blessings of the covenant, whatever covenant it is, according to this kind of covenant, you have to obey the laws of the covenant. If you disobey the laws of the covenant, you get get punished. The second type requires believing. If you don't like the first type and you like the second type, that's good. The second type of covenant requires believing. It requires receiving the blessings of the covenant 
gained for us by the obedience of Jesus Christ. I think the second type of covenant, it's what, what is being talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31. In the next two weeks, I think you'll see that very clearly. So what is the new covenant? Um, we're going to look at this text first, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I want to make a few observations, and the first one is this. This new covenant is promised to be revealed as a covenant to be formally, historically inaugurated in the future. Behold, the days are coming. Okay, so these are coming days. And this, these coming days, whenever all the days between the promise and the fulfillment comes, um, this covenant will be historically or formally um, inaugurated, uh, we could add, by the blood of, of Christ. So that's the first observation. It's talking about the future. Secondly, this covenant is not like the co- not like the covenant at Sinai. It's not like that covenant, uh, a covenant which could be and was broken by Israel more than once. In other words, the new covenant, whatever it is, it can't be broken like the old or Mosaic covenant was. Also, the new covenant secures various blessings for everybody in the covenant. If you're in this covenant, here are the blessings you get. The law written on the heart, I'll write it on their minds, the saving knowledge of God, and the forgiveness of sins. All will know me. You think that means all will know about me? I don't think that's what it means. I think it means all will know me savingly. I think that's what it means. So we have this work within, writing the law on the heart, putting it on our minds, this work within, saving knowledge of God, and then this universal, within the covenant, forgiveness of sins. So that's our first text. Our next text is just um, one chapter over, Jeremiah 32, verse 40. We're just looking at some of the prophecies of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. Here it is, Jeremiah 32, 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. So this seems to be, and I think it is, in contrast to something previous, right? I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. This must be a, some sort of covenant, this everlasting covenant, where God does not, obviously, turn away from those in the covenant and judge them as a result of their sins or bad deeds, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Hmm. So you have perseverance of the saints, but also uh, preserving gra- the preserving grace of God. If you are a Christian and you have persevered for 10, 15 years, five years, eight seconds, um, it's because of preserving grace. It's not because of grit that we persevere, uh, how have you got this far in your Christian life? Grit. How have, you, how, how have you gotten this far in your Christian life? Well, I don't feel like I'm very far in my Christian life. I'm a terrible Christian, actually, 
compared to the truths of the word of God, but it's all by grace. That, that's really different. So here we have the language of everlasting covenant. I said it's, we bring it up and uh, it's brought up in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. You think Paul's making that phrase up? You know what? I'll just make up a new phrase. Everlasting covenant. I don't think he's doing that. You read the book of Hebrews. What is the antecedent to the book of Hebrews? The entire Old Testament, right? That's what he's dealing with. How do we understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament? So this this language, everlasting covenant, is not invented by Paul. He picks it up from Jeremiah 32. It's also in Isaiah 60-something or other, 61, I think. Uh, But it's very interesting that he uses that language. So whatever he's talking about is, I think, the same thing Jeremiah is talking about, the everlasting covenant. This everlasting covenant has blood. It was blood shed by the Savior. So just like the Mosaic covenant was inaugurated formally by the shedding of blood, so this new covenant, this everlasting covenant, was inaugurated formally or historically by virtue of the shedding of the blood of the incarnate Son of God for us and for our salvation. But notice also from the Jeremiah text, Jeremiah 32, God will not turn away from those in this covenant. Did God turn away from any when the old covenant, when uh, the Mosaic covenant was broken by ancient Israel? Did he punish him? Yeah, right? Read the prophets. I mean, it's all over the place. And the prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys. And what the prophets of the Old Testament are doing to ancient Israel is they're saying, hey, go back to Moses. Remember all the promises and the threats God made? God gave you wonderful promises, and look at what you've done. Now the curses are kind of going to come upon you. God, in this everlasting covenant, will not turn away from those in this covenant. And then third, God will work in their hearts, and none in this covenant will turn away from him. You might say, well, okay, God won't turn away from me, but what if I turn away from him? Well, the promise here is that you might try, um, but he won't let you go. You remember in John 10 when our Lord said, it's a great statement, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And, and I think he said that, and we ought to get great comfort from that. My father is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one shall snatch them out of my father's hand. Uh, metaphors for the execution of divine power and the preservation of the sheep all the way to the end. Okay? So I think that's what's being talked about here. Not that by my grit I get there, but by God's grace I might sin and try to sin my way out of grace, but there's no way to sin your way out of grace. It's God doing something in us, to us, for his for his, for his glory. So I think that's what's being uh, pointed out here. Let's uh, look at another prophet, Ezekiel. One book over. Ezekiel 36, just looking again at the promise of the new covenant and drilling down a little deeper next week on what that entails. 
Here we have Ezekiel 36, uh, 24 to 27. These are the words of God. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Obviously a metaphor for a divine work terminating on sin-sick souls, right? Like us. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, Ezekiel doesn't use the phrase new covenant. But having read the two passages from Jeremiah, I think if Ezekiel was here, he would say, well, of course, that's what I'm talking about. I don't have to use the exact words Jeremiah uses. And if you think I do, you're wrong. Because I didn't, but I was talking about the same thing. I think Ezekiel would say something like that. It's clearly the promise of the new covenant, though, without the phrase new covenant. By the way, which should teach us something. The Bible can talk about the same thing without using the same words in different places. That's what's going on here. Jeremiah talks about this thing he identifies as new covenant and then everlasting covenant. Ezekiel doesn't use that language, but he's speaking about the same thing. So let's look at uh, this under three headings. First of all, everyone in this covenant will enjoy sins forgiven. You find that in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So here we have this cleansing action. This is sins forgiven. All their sins are going to be forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from most of our sins. No, only the seasoned saints got that one. That's actually in the New Testament. It doesn't say most of our sins, all of our sins. Okay, so I think that's what he's, he's talking about. He's talking about the effect produced by the grace of God upon the souls of people who believe in Christ. All their sins are forgiven. Also notice, everyone in this covenant will have a new heart. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Everyone in this covenant has the internal work of grace common with other people. Was everyone under the Mosaic covenant? Did they all have in common the eternal work of grace in their souls that united them to Christ? Was everybody saved who was under the uh, Mosaic Covenant? And the answer is, somebody, people are always saying, well, I don't know, knows the answer. This is different, though. This is what theologians call the covenant of grace, I think. Everyone in this covenant enjoys the forgiveness of sins. Everyone in this covenant will have a new heart. Um... You must be born again. Remember, Jesus chided Nicodemus, who was in the John passage that we read this morning, for not knowing that. You don't know about regeneration, the promise of the new birth, the fact that you must be born again, but you can't cause yourself to be a born again, Nicodemus. It's in the Old Testament. Where is it? Here's one of the places. Everyone in this 
covenant will have a new heart. Now, I can tell you, you need a new heart. But I can't cause a new heart to be born in you. This is a promise of internal grace to sinners by virtue of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Notice thirdly, everyone in this covenant will possess the Spirit of God as the effective cause of their obedience to the law of God. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, if you're a Christian, you're going, well, God, please cause me to walk in your statutes more. Well, yeah. But have you walked in them at all with a glad heart? Yes. Well, who do you trace that back to? God being gracious to me. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, does this mean perfectly? I think ultimately and eschatologically, yes. But when we come to the New Testament, it's this very covenant that's promised in the Old Testament that was inaugurated historically or formally by our Lord Jesus Christ and under which we as Christians live. So it has a this age application and a age to come or that age application as well. Everyone in this covenant will enjoy sins forgiven. Everyone in this covenant will have a new heart. Everyone in this covenant will possess the Spirit of God as the effective cause of their obedience to the law of God. If you have the Spirit of God working in you, um, he is causing you as a believer to obey the law of God. The ultimate cause is him, not us. And so even if you know you get some miles under your belt as a Christian and you see some progress and you look back and people are acknowledging it, say, brother or sister, you know, in the last three years, you've really blossomed. The, the graces of, 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 of the Christian uh, religion are blossoming out in your life and your soul. And you say, yeah, well, I worked harder to, to earn it. Uh, you just destroyed the whole thing. So time to start over. You say, you know what? Um, uh, I'm not what I one day will be. I'm not what I once was. I am what I am by the grace of God. John Newton said that. That should be our response to these things because we're not in glory if you haven't figured it out yet. We don't do as as will perfectly. We want to if we're true Christians. How many true Christians here? Don't raise your hand if this is true of you because this won't be a good thing to raise your hand for. But how many true Christians here want to live this way? Uh, I really don't want to obey God, but I do but I don't want to. Isn't it more like, I really want to, but I don't always. It should be that, right? Our desire is not, as believers, to transgress the law of God. It's like we got something wrong with us and something right with us at the same time, right? Read Romans 7, and I think that is talking about the... The Apostle Paul at the end of the chapter there, agonizing within him, like, what is this? Who am I? On the one hand, I desire this. On the other hand, I desire that. After all, all this agonizing at the end of Romans 7, he just stops. He says, look, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
He says, you know, whatever was wrong with me, remaining corruption, inclinations for the good and the right, actions in my life that actually correspond with the good things that God rots in me, and actions in my life that don't correspond with grace worked in me. Uh, You know, he's agonizing over all those things. He says, when it's all said and done, I know this much, I'm still not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Um, somebody might be sitting here going, yeah, you're reading from the Old Testament. That's back then. The New Testament's different. Well, let's, let's dig into that a little more. Are these passages only promising things for ethnic Jewish people? Now, I could push back on that view and say, well, these passages were promised to ethnic Jewish people who were then living. Have you ever thought of that? So these people had to be racing the dead in the future to receive these promises? That sounds weird. It does, doesn't it? Some people read these passages this way. These, these promises were made to ethnic Jews. Therefore, they're going to be fulfilled exclusively with ethnic Jews. Now, the problem with that as Christians is when you read the New Testament, even the phrase New Covenant shows up, which Paul is borrowing from Jeremiah, and the phrase Everlasting Covenant comes up, which Paul is borrowing from Ezekiel and Isaiah, and they apply this the grace of this New Covenant. Guess, guess who they apply it to? Jews and Gentiles. So the Old Testament can use language that sounds very exclusively Jewish, but it has to be read in the broader context of the Old Testament and the New Testament to realize, oh, God's promising not exclusively to Jews, uh, ethnic Jews, but he's, he's, he's promising to all who might believe in the gospel these gospel promises. So let's try to make uh, some connections here to see what I'm talking about. Listen to Malachi 3.1 with Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Matthew 3, 1 through 3. You can listen or you can turn to those texts if you want. Malachi 3.1, and what's going to happen here is we're going to see some of these things that are being promised in these New Covenant prophecy texts end up terminating uh, upon or finding their fulfillment through what our Lord Jesus Christ ends up doing the Old Testament, what the Old Testament promises, Christ fulfills, and that we'll see the connections between these. I think this is important to see. So here's Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send, and the New King James has capitalized, my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now this is very interesting language. And the Lord... Now notice, behold, I send my messenger, capitalized, and he, lowercase, will prepare the way before me, capitalized, this is a divine person, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
That's a very interesting passage. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, if you put your New Testament goggles on, you know this text is applied to John the Baptist. The one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Look at that, all capitalized. Yahweh, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we're going to turn to the New Testament, because what the New Testament is going to do here is going to pick up those threads in light of the coming of Christ and John the Baptist. Here's John, Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this promised messenger of the covenant in the Old Testament ends up being not John the Baptist, but our Lord himself. Now listen to Isaiah 42, verse 1, and Isaiah 42, verse 6. This is in the Old Testament, but again, then we're going to go to the New Testament that picks up these two texts in the light of fulfillment in the New Covenant days, trying to show you that these promises that seem to be nearly exclusive to ethnic Jews actually implicitly included promises for Gentiles as well in the one body of Christ. Isaiah 42, 1 and 6, behold... You know what behold is there for. It's, it's like, okay, if the sermon's boring and you're falling asleep, this is an important text. Behold, check this out, listen, okay? Behold, my servant, my is capitalized, my servant whom I uphold, my, look at, elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Jews only. To the Gentiles. Here's verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you. If your version doesn't have you capitalized, it should. I have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. This is a promise for the incarnate son to have divine protection. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, Jews, as a light to the Gentiles. Ah, so now we have a servant, the servant of the covenant, an individual servant of the covenant who is promised divine help whenever he comes and serves as the covenant for the people as a light to the Gentiles. Now listen to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verses 14 to 18. I'll give you five seconds to turn there if you'd like to. Or I can just tell you this. What's going to happen in Matthew 12 is what we've already seen. What That which is promised in the old ends up terminating in the first coming of our Lord. It has ultimate future and eschatological implications as well. But the promises made in the old terminate on Jew-Gentile believers in the New Testament. Matthew 12, 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But... By the way, isn't that interesting? Who are they pawns of here trying to destroy the incarnate Son of God? The seed of the woman 
shall crush the head of the serpent. But the seed of the serpent shall bruise the heel. These are heel bruisers. They are in league with the devil here, trying to destroy him. The Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. And here are the devil's envoy trying to destroy the incarnate Son of God who came to destroy the work of the devil. I think they're in the wrong business. How they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Ha. Huh. So Matthew viewed that Isaiahic text that seems obscure on its own, somehow, someway related to Jesus. Jesus brings to fulfillment these servant oracles of the Old Testament. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. I forgot to tell you, we're just going to read a bunch of passages to help you see the connections. I think one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to help you read the Bible better on your own, and help you listen to sermons better by having better lenses through which you understand Scripture. The best lens to understand Scripture, by the way, is Scripture. The more you, under, the more you know the contents of the Scripture, the more connections you'll see. See, by the way, have you ever seen that? It's on Facebook and Twitter. That meme? Whatever it is. It shows a timeline, Genesis through Revelation, and then it has all those arcs, and there's like hundreds and thousands of them, showing all the interconnectedness of the language of Scripture. Some of you are old enough to know the treasury of Scripture knowledge. Remember that one? You know what the treasury of Scripture knowledge is? Some of you are going, what in the world is that? Sounds like an old book. Well, it is. When I got saved, one of the things somebody said, it was actually a seasoned saint in the church who took me under his wing, and I remember we read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And before we read it, he says, do you know what 1 Corinthians 8.1 says in the King James? And I said, no. He says, you don't have a Bible then. Here, borrow my Bible. So he opened his King James version up and it said, uh, knowledge puffeth up. So he said, this, is gonna give, this book by Packer is going to give you a, a lot of knowledge. Don't get puffy on me. I got puffy on him, but anyway. So you get, you, the more knowledge you have of the Word of God, the more you can see these connections. This treasury of Scripture knowledge, it goes from, it, it'll have like Genesis, and then it has chapter 1, verse 1, and then all kinds of cross-references. That's it. It doesn't give you, the text of Genesis 1 gives you cross-references. So somebody has actually uh, put that into a visual for us to see all these arcs of connection between, within the Old Testament, to itself, from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, the New Testament with itself, and then back from the New to the Old, and, and you get all mangled and all that stuff, because there's so many connections, just amazing. So the more we understand our Bibles, the better, when I could just read texts, you go, oh, oh. and then here's what happens afterwards. People come to pastor, did you ever think of this connection? 
And usually I say, well, yes, I've thought of all of them, but I didn't want to overwhelm you with my knowledge. Of course I haven't thought of all of them. But listen to Luke. Luke 2, 25 to 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the inauguration of the new covenant, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, that's interesting. Okay, you're going to see the Lord's Christ, then you're going to die. That's what we're told the Holy Spirit reveals to him. We're not told the Holy Spirit revealed to him anything else, that it would be a special endowment of, a, of infused knowledge from the Holy Spirit upon the human soul of, of this man named Simeon. There could be more, but he doesn't tell us. Where do you get the knowledge of the Lord's Christ? If you didn't know anything about the Lord's Christ, and you had this special revelation from the Holy Spirit that said, and you lived in the first century, by the way, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. If you had no knowledge of the Lord's Christ, you'd be going, huh? Right? Now, watch what happens. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the, the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I can die. I've seen the Lord's Christ. He must have had a knowledge of the Lord's Christ previous to the Holy Spirit saying, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. Where do you get that knowledge? Thank you. He got it from the Old Testament. So that at the incarnation of Christ, there were expectations of the Lord's Christ in the souls of Christ's people based on the revelation of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, without the New Testament, produced believers in the Lord's Christ to come. Isn't that a novel idea? So he came by the Spirit, uh, the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen, this is cool, the Lord's Christ. Yes, but the words he uses here is, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Jews. If you're following along, you know it says, to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. God used ancient Israel as the means through which to bring the Messiah to the world. God so loved the world that he gave. Now listen to Acts 13, 47. By the way, there's a song by Michael Card, where he, he sings about Simeon. It's a glorious song. I remember one time Jim Butler emailed me and said, listen to this song. I just got done crying after listening to it. It's about Simeon. It's like, oh, now I can die. What a, what a 
you know, what a kind of, for the world, if you're not a believer, you're going, what do you mean now I can die? I don't want to die. Well, if the Holy Spirit said, you're going to see the Lord's Christ, then you're going to die, and you saw the Lord's Christ, then you should say, well, it's time to go. Uh, Acts 13:47. For so the Lord has commanded us, this is Paul, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, again, evoking, calling upon Isaiah to help Paul interpret uh, what's going on in the first century after the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. The fulfillment of Isaiahic prophecy is what's going on. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Forgiveness of sins, law written on our hearts, fear of God within us. We're not the only people that that's true of. It's all over the earth now. Not in the soul of every single individual, but it's all over the place. This the graces promised in the New Covenant passage, passages are for Jews and Gentiles all over the place, brought to them by virtue of what Jesus did for them. Acts chapter 26. Paul again, verses 22 and 23. I'm almost finished. Therefore, having obtained help from God, To this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Specifically, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting about that is it says that the Christ would uh, would would suffer unto death. They would be rise from the dead, and the Christ would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. But we don't have any account whatsoever in the New Testament of Jesus in the flesh proclaiming light to the Gentiles after his resurrection. It's very Jewish. That is, his manifestation uh, between his resurrection and ascension and, and exaltation, it's very Jewish. It's not Gentile. It's not what we see in Paul. But here Paul says, Christ would suffer, Christ would be the first to rise from the dead, and Christ would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And Paul says, this is being fulfilled through his ministry. So how does Christ proclaim light after his resurrection to Jews and to Gentiles? He does it through, at least here, the apostles' preaching. This is Isaianic language again. This is new covenant promised language again in fulfillment. The Old Testament promises the Lord's servant who would bring light to the nations, uh, uh, revelatory information and grace and salvation to both Gentiles, Jews, and Greeks. 
The Old Testament promises that he would be a covenant to the people, Jews and Greeks, to open blind eyes. And the New Testament says that God has delivered good on his promise in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that text in, oh, it's 1050. Let's go there. Ephesians chapter 2. This is icing on the cake, hopefully. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we just read Acts 26. And he's, Paul's evoking the Old Testament language of the servant, bringing light to Jews and Greeks. And he says, the Old Testament, whatever I'm, what I'm saying is exactly what Moses and the prophet said would take place, that the Christ would suffer, that he'd be raised from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to the people and to the Gentiles, to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Well, if we go to Ephesians Chapter 2. Here's Paul again. Now, now, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go to verse 11. I'm just going to read several verses here, and we'll get to verse 17. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh... Who are, uncircums- who, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're a lost person, this is you. You have no hope, no confident expectation of salvation, and you're without God in the world. What a... What a What a terrifying thing. Who made the world? God. Who sustains it? God. Am I a part of the world? Yep. Did God make me? Yep. Did God sustain me? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But yet I'm without him? What do you mean I'm without him? Your sins aren't forgiven. You're not in Christ. You got no hope. And you're without God in that sense. But you're very much with God in another sense. And that should be the terrifying point. But now in Christ Jesus, so he's talking to believers here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off. Now, if we had one of those treasury of scripture knowledge thingies and we all open it up to 217 or 213 and and it far off, it would probably give us a reference to the Old Testament. Just remember that language far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Jews, Gentiles, right? And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So if the Lord's Christ is promised in the Old Testament, then the Lord's Christ's salvation, as promised in the Old Testament, contained promises for both Jews and Greeks. And that's the way the New Testament interprets it. Now, Why did I read this passage? Verse 17. And he, capitalized H, he came and preached peace, the gospel, to you who were afar off, there it is again, 
and to those who were near. Far off and near, far off and near. You ever heard that before? Again, if we had a treasury of scripture knowledge, it would direct us to Isaiah 59. Paul is saying that there is a time in these Ephesian Gentiles' experience as Christians that Christ came to them and preached peace to them, both them who were far off and to those who were near, to Jews and to Greeks, and it seems like after the procurement of peace, after his death and resurrection. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. And it corresponds with these words that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. After the resurrection, I think he's saying this too, after the ascension of Christ, through the words preached to you by the apostle Paul, You can read them in Acts chapter 9. The ascended Christ preached through Paul to you and your souls were changed. The servant of the Lord served the benefits of the Lord to you through the preaching of the good news, through the gospel. By the way, this is why the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The voice of Christ is heard by the people of Christ through the preachers of Christ. It's in many places. I think what Paul's doing in Acts chapter 2 is he's basically saying, hey, Gentiles, you're a, fulf- you're a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Because the Messiah was promised, the servant of the Lord was promised to bring the, all these gracious benefits that he procures in his life unto death obedience, rewarded by his resurrection. And it says that light's going to come not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. Uh, regeneration and effectual calling and salvation and union with Christ and adoption and justification and sanctification and ultimately glory. All that comes by virtue of what he does, and it was promised to both Jews and Greeks who would believe. You're Jew, Jew, Greeks who have believed, and here's the reason why. There he is up in heaven, and he's commissioning his, his apostles to go first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And this is one of the ends of the earth, guys, the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And as Paul's rehearsing the gospel message in these people he's hearing, the ascended Christ is causing the spirit of Christ to bring the benefits of Christ to the elect of Christ, sheep of Christ, before they were believers in Christ. And now they're a church, like us, by the way. But all this is connected to the Old Testament. Isaiah 59, I think, is the passage that Paul is... Paul is evoking there, but he evokes other passages as well. All this to say this, and I am finished. Those promises of the new covenant end up being the benefits that Jesus earned for us and gives to us. And it's going to include this writing of the law in our hearts. Most everybody loves the forgiveness of sins. You love that part. And, okay, the Spirit of Christ is in me, causing me to fear God, but please do that more. It's the law thing that we kind of stumble over, and it's it's hard. It's a difficult question. But we have to face it, and we will face it next week in this uh, context of studying the issues before us. Well, I have more, but I am finished for now, and we'll pick up in the second hour. Let's... Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'd help us. We have to 
We need to be whole Bible Christians, understanding the promise uh, motif of the Old Testament and the fulfillment motif of the new, centering on the incarnate Son of God, the servant of the Lord who would mysteriously be upheld and have the Spirit without measure and destroy the works of the devil and bear the wrath of God for us and justify the many, not just among Jews, but among Greeks as well. Not just for first century people, but people of all centuries. Because ultimately, anybody before, during, or after the incarnation is ultimately saved by virtue of what Christ does for sinners. We want to understand that better and more, and we want it to drive our hearts to grateful living. Uh, Do that in us. Uh, Stir up in us this awe and this reverence, this fear of God. Help us to love your law more and express our love for you through its commands to you and for the benefit of others as well. Work in us your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.